0: Welcome to the Mercy Cast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I'm your host, Raleigh Sadler. And for many of us, we learn to love what we're doing through what we've experienced. Oftentimes, the things that we've experienced, the painful things we've experienced, shape who we are and help us see our neighbor in a different light. And we've been talking about this from many different perspectives since I started the podcast, but I wanted to take a step back today. I want to talk about this idea of learning to love those in front of you by understanding what is behind you. I wanted to talk about that from a rabbinical perspective. Joe's parents never told him the full story. To be honest, both of his parents had both been in and lost spouses and children in Nazi concentration camps. But then they found each other in a ghetto in Poland soon after the war. Like clockwork, Joe was born in a displaced persons camp in Wottenburg. Today I'm joined by Rabbi Joe Potasnik, who is the executive vice president of the New York Board of Rabbis and a chaplain of the New York Fire Department. Joe, welcome to MercyCast.
1: Raleigh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to know you both professionally and personally. I expect you to talk about compassion because the Raleigh Sandler I know (laughs) is one who embodies such compassion for others, regardless of their background or belief. You know, sometimes we draw circles that are very close, as Mother Teresa said, very small circles, and we only put in them people who look like us and think like us. Our responsibility, as you know, and as Mm. you've done, is to broaden the circle and bring other people into it.
0: Well, and that's super kind because that is the goal, right? We want to connect with other people. And what I've found is I don't have to have absolutely everything in common with everyone I know. And I know some people operate like that. But I learn way more about life and I'm challenged way more when I sit with people who will help me think about things that maybe I'm missing. And what I thought was so interesting was when I moved to New York, I'll never forget just how I was accepted by this huge group of rabbis. I didn't see that coming. That was not on my bingo card. And I'm the guy, when I walk through New York, I get stopped about three times a day. Excuse me, sir. Are you Jewish? (laughs) And so, of course, I was going to get adopted. And I've learned so much through my friendship with you and different people who are with the New York Board of Rabbis. That's why I wanted to have you here, because so much of your story and how you interact with people is not coming from this sterilized approach where everything is supposed to be perfect. You're saying, no, life is hard. And through hardships, I've learned to care for other people. And how do you think your parents' story and how that overflowed into your story impacted your story with other people?
1: So, Raleigh, first let me say when people ask you, are you Jewish? You should know that years ago, we had a cardinal in New York, John Cardinal O'Connor, highly respected and loved by the New York Catholic community. His sister, Mary Ward O'Connor, did some genealogy research and found out that her mother was Jewish, which means the cardinal of New York was Jewish. So when someone says to you, are you Jewish? Don't rule out the possibility that you might be Jewish by a certain percentage or by 100%. But the fact is, Uh, We're all spiritual Semites. We all belong to one union with different locals. So that's why I think you and I have learned, let's be reluctant to
0: uh, label people. Let's look at the larger common denominator. Well, here is an interesting thing. I was walking around Yale once. I took a couple of days when I first moved here, and I'm just walking around Yale exploring. I'm with some friends, and this person says, Excuse me, sir are you Jewish? And at this point I've had enough. And I said, why are you asking? And you know, he's a Hasidic student and he was awesome. And he goes, I've got a better question for you. So he answered my question with a question, (laughs) of course. It was was such a good move. And he goes, is your mother's mother Jewish? (laughs) And I said, ah, so it's funny you say that because right when I graduated from theological seminary, I asked my grandmother, I said, hey, you know, I'm just hearing different people say your family came from Germany around that time. And grandma, you your, your last name is Baumgartner. You know, there's, there's a lot going on here. And I said, some people were saying that you could be Jewish. And she goes, well, it's because we are. And I'm like, what? Uh No one's ever said that in the history of my family. And she's like, no, we are. And then I did a 23andMe and it said that there was German, but So I don't know, maybe I am, but yeah, I'll roll with it. But she believed that. My son, who is born Jewish, when
1: he's stopped by anybody in the street, are you Jewish? He resents it. He said, why are you asking me? And if I am, why do I have to tell you? So, you know, you get different reactions. You know what we say, Raleigh, that in New York, every Christian is a Jew and in Idaho, every Jew is a Christian. So just by being here, you get some credit for that. But you asked me before about, you know, the the growing up I had, and it, it was a different kind of home. Two parents whose lives have been devastated by the loss of their spouses and children, and yet they didn't want to talk about it because they wanted me to have a different chapter of life. I grew up in a home when there were pictures of kids on the dresser. When I was younger, they didn't want to talk to me about who those kids were. They simply took the attitude, oh, uh, family, you'll, you'll learn about them later on when I get older. I was able to finally learn from them after putting some pressure on them that they were children of theirs whom I never knew. And Raleigh, I think the reason, or one of the reasons I went into the rabbinate is because I felt I had a responsibility to those kids. I had to do mm-hmm. something to perpetuate their memory. I think one of the reasons I try to speak out for those who can't speak anymore or those who are victims of some kind of horror or abuse is because. In their memory, they can't speak, so we have to be the voices, as you have been over the years. You know, there's an interesting billboard in New York. It says you never stand so tall as when you stoop to help a child. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. There's only one problem. It's across the street from a cemetery. Ooh. And you look at that, you say, what it's saying is this image, that if we don't stand tall to help that child, Who knows what's going to happen to that child? Yeah. By the way, if anybody wants to see it, you go out to exit 49 on the LIE, you'll see that billboard right across from a cemetery. You know, some people in this world ask, what can I do? And I think those of us with a deep commitment to helping others ask, well, what else can I do? But we cannot remain silent. In Jewish tradition, I would say in Christian tradition, all religious traditions, there's no such thing as an innocent bystander. Right? Right. If you witness a crime being committed, a horror being perpetrated, you have to respond. You simply can't say, well, don't get involved. It's not my business. I mentioned to you recently about the, the golden calf where, you know, a minority was involved in building the calf. The majority didn't do anything. So I've always said after reading that lesson, you see, we always say silence is golden. I would add, no, silence is, can be a golden calf because when you do nothing, look at the results. So, growing up, finally, I heard the story. I also learned that when my parents came to this country, the people who reached out to them were from two groups. One, the Jews of the Jewish Community Center in Lynn, Massachusetts, and the others were the nuns of St. Mary's Church in Lynn, Massachusetts. Now, I understand why Jews would reach out to Holocaust survivors. Why nuns? Because it's part of their tradition. It's part of our tradition. You talk about compassion. The first and last letters of the Torah spell heart. If you don't have a heart, it's good to be smart. But without compassion, you're an incomplete person. Look, smart people built death camps, and smart people enacted the Nuremberg laws, but they had no hearts. Mm. So, compassion to me is a prerequisite into being a decent human being.
0: You know, as you talk about the nuns who cared for you and your family, I'm reminded of that poem by Martin Niemöller who, you know, first they came for the communists and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I'm not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak out for me. And it really taps into this idea of compassion for really the sake of humanity It's very easy just to care for people that we may say are our own. But you probably have way more in common with your neighbor than you would ever know. You just need to talk to them. Hillel, who was a contemporary of Jesus, Mm -hmm. said, if I'm only for myself,
1: who am I? If all I do is uh, protect my own people and completely close my eyes to the pains of other people, uh, to me in Jewish tradition, you're incomplete. You're an incomplete human being. And you know, Raleigh, one of the things we learned and we learned it now with the increasing hate crimes. Yeah. The person who hates me today is going to hate you tomorrow. Right. The person who desecrates a synagogue is going to desecrate a church or a mosque. You know, years ago, I was listening to the rabbi from tree of life synagogue in Pittsburgh where that okay. slaughter took place. Yeah. And he asked this question, when we said never again after the war did we put a question mark after it or an exclamation mark after it? And I think that says to us, as long as we see hatred in the world, never again is a declarative statement, but still has a question mark next to it. We believe never again, but we haven't seen never again, given the various atrocities committed against people of all different
0: backgrounds throughout the world. Well, and it's not lost on me that what you do and what all of us do comes from our stories. And so when you heard the story of the children that were on the mantle and you heard what happened, what was happening within you, Rabbi Joe? Like what was, what, how were you processing that? So let me tell you one story that
1: to me really registered at the age of 13. I had a bar mitzvah. That's a, you know, common ceremony. It, Brings you into adulthood. Mm -hmm. And we had a party. And I remember it was in Brookline, Massachusetts. And I'm standing next to my dad and mom. And you know, you have that candle lighting ceremony where they call you as the young man to light the candle, call the parents. And the person arranging the party before it began said, could you give me the name of all the family members? Because we want to light a total of 13 candles. And so I need, besides you three, who else will light the candle? And my father said, we don't have that many family members living anymore. We have just a few. So we're going to call up friends. And I realized right there that those kids and the kids of so many others don't have bar bat mitzvahs, don't have the celebrations of life Mm. uh, that we have. So I understood why in Jewish tradition, the Talmud, which is the commentary on the Torah, begins on page two. There's no mm. page one in the Talmud, page two, and I think sometimes you have to learn how to begin on page two, which is what my parents and so many other families did after the war, learning how to begin again. Elie Wiesel said it well: when you're born, you begin, but there comes a time in life where you may have to learn how to begin again, and my family uh, certainly did that. You know, Raleigh, I read about the weavers of a, uh, a rug in the Orient. If they make a mistake as they're knitting, They can't take it out. They have to integrate the mistake into the pattern. And I think that's what we have to learn how to do. There are certain scars and scratches of life we can't remove. But somehow we have to take them and still make life meaningful for everyone. So you're taking a scar, you're taking a scratch, and still creating a design so you can begin again.
0: Well, and no one would have blamed your parents if they never got married again, if they just wanted to just end it all after the depravity of humanity that they had seen. But they took a chance. They took a chance on love. They they took a chance on another family. They raised a son. And I love this idea of beginning again, because for me, you know, as I think about just personal adversity that I've experienced and that people I know have experienced. The idea of starting over can be so daunting. It can be so scary, but it begins with one step, right? I love the page two analogy of the Talmud. Remember that famous Broadway show, Annie? Yeah. And what was the song? The
1: sun will come out tomorrow. I asked my father one day, I said, how did you endure what you went through in the camps? How did you continue to live He said, Joe, because I still believed that God would grant me a tomorrow. And I think we are prisoners of hope as people of faith. And as difficult as today may begin,
0: the sun is going to come out tomorrow. And so it's that hoping against hope. It's that my entire reality is pointing to this not happening. But I believe in something bigger. I believe in something higher, that it can't be like this forever. This can't be the final story. Yeah, this isn't my last page.
1: You know, uh, when people ask me, is there a next world? I said, well, I can't give you definite proof, but I can tell you this. There are so many injustices that I see. And if I believe in a compassionate God, I have to believe that there is something after this world. That it has to be tomorrow. Because why should, in the hospital, one child be born healthy and another one with serious deformities? You know, why, why should someone uh, live to the age of 100 and someone else be taken from this world in his or her 30s? I have to believe that there is a divine design. There is something more, because otherwise it would be very unfair for us.
0: And I also believe that taps into the idea of God and his love for justice, because both Christians and those who follow Judaism they center on this idea of God caring for the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. He's caring for those who don't have an advocate. He becomes their advocate. But then he also says to the people of Israel, you were sojourners once, now love the sojourner. Like it's, he's always tapping into their redemption. Let me go back to Elie Wiesel again. When
1: he was asked years ago, where was God during the Holocaust? Mm. He said, that's not the question you should be asking. Mm. Question is, where were human beings during the Holocaust? What were they doing when all of this was going on? So, yeah, because we suffered, we have responsibility to those who are suffering today. The word in Hebrew for community is kihila. In the word kihila is the word kol is a voice. If you belong to a community, you better have a voice and speak out for others. Those who turn their
0: backs never see tears. Oh, wow. Those who turn their backs never see tears. Yeah,
1: that's not my quotation. I remember reading that some time ago.
0: No, that's so good because to really show compassion, we have to face reality. And reality is not fun. It's not easy. It's It's hard. And seeing people's pain and coming face to face with their trauma brings us face to face with ours. And sometimes we want to push people away just because we don't want to be with ourselves. But this requires a holistic approach. It requires us to really be integrated and be where we are and say, okay, this is reality. Whether I I love everything that's happening or not. And so for me to love others, I have to accept what's happening and engage them and accept people for where they are and walk with them.
1: What's the alternative? Right. The alternative is to become a very bitter to succumb to passive resignation, to retreat, just to be a miserable human being. I don't think God wants us to be miserable, and we want to inflict, as my
0: parents, we don't inflict our, our pain on others. No, and, and it's interesting because as you're sharing this story, I'm thinking, yeah, Rabbi Joe is falling in line with this historical theological approach where God is always calling his people, the Jews first, and then I would say the Gentiles, <laughs> us. But yeah. I, might be, I might be Jewish, so maybe I'm both. I don't know. May, I don't, I'm still figuring it out.
1: Well, I like to think <laughs> that God gave each one of us specialized missions. So when you say we're chosen people, it doesn't mean we're better than anybody else. It means we're chosen for a certain mission. As Christians, as Muslims, as others, their faith calls them to responsibility. That they have to do as much as they can to make life better. You know, we have that phrase, tikkun olam. Uh-huh. Dukunum doesn't mean perfect the world, as some people say. It means to repair the world. You can't mm-hmm. perfect it. can't make it perfect, but you can make it better. So I think all of us working together, like those nuns from St. Mary's Church, the Jews from the Jewish Center, can make it a little bit better. Uh, you know, Raleigh, 1999, I was asked by the mayor to become a chaplain for the fire department mm-hmm. in New York. And I have to tell you, to meet people who are ready to risk their lives, to rescue lives, to me is a great, great honor. I met a woman and she told me something that some of us do. She said, when an ambulance goes by, a fire engine goes by, she said, I put my fingers in my ears, too loud. Then she said, after 9-11, I stopped doing that because I... Instead recited the prayer saying, Blessed are you as you leave for your destination, and blessed are you when you return from that destination. We have to be thankful that we have those in our midst who are our brothers and sisters, not just keepers, but saviors. They want to save lives. I met a woman who was saved nine eleven, and I said to her, What did you say to the firefighter when he first arrived? She said, I turned to him and I said, I knew you'd come. I knew you'd come. So here are people who know that they might be losing their life, but we
0: know they're going to be there for us. And so you are a chaplain of the FDNY, and it's 9-11. I mean, I just graduated college. I was late to work when I heard what happened. I wasn't in New York. And so, but even in Florida, none of us knew what to do. And you're a chaplain. Like, What was that experience like?
1: First thing I did is I ran to the synagogue, and I was told by FDNY, because our synagogue was near FDNY main headquarters, set up a triage center because the Brooklyn Bridge was right near the synagogue in Brooklyn Heights, and as people were coming off the bridge, at least they would have a place to, to sit and find transportation. Phones weren't working, so we tried try to get people into, you know, to, to pool cars so they could get home. And then I went down to what we call Ground Zero, and I knew a number of people who died that day. I had married a a young man who went to a conference that day, and his life was taken. So his daughter, his wife was pregnant at the time. Uh, Daughter never met her father. It's interesting. I thought to myself, I knew her father. She's the daughter. She Mm. didn't know her father. So I was there, and bodies were coming out, of, being brought out of the buildings, and we didn't ask, are you Jewish, are you Christian? No. These are human beings who had lost their lives. And we recited, you know, some Psalms. I stood next to a priest and a minister reciting our respective prayers and and just, you know, holding on to each other. I, 9-10, the day before, I was at a dedication of a firehouse. And I remember Father Michael Judge, who was taken from us on nine eleven. He said something of the dedication, which was prophetic. He said, you know, in life, you have to learn to hold on to memory, hold on to the moment, and hold on to each other. How true that was, 9-11 and following those days, we hold on to their memories. When we come together, we hold on to this moment as we hold on to each other. Some great human beings were taken from us, families, you know, never the same. And somehow, Raleigh, they learned also how to begin again, start
0: on page two. And this idea of beginning again, I moved here in 2012, and what I would be told over and over and over and over by people was, this isn't the New York of the 1980s. It absolutely changed after 9-11. Something changed in the psyche of New York. People slowed down a tiny bit. They were a little bit more present. They focused on the person in front of them. Is this something that you experienced? Yeah, I
1: think... We started looking at, firstly, people and saying they're part of our family. Look at, you know, close to 3,000 that we lost. Actually, we've lost more because people have died with 9-11 related deaths. And we mourn all of them. And we don't separate them into categories. And secondly, we value our families because we realize that time is so precious. Life is a gift. Things we've often said but 911 really confirmed that for us that we don't know how long we have each other but as long as we do have each other we have to do whatever we can to to live life to its its fullest with with meaning and depth and understanding and not be bogged down by some of the the, the trivial things that we allow to to uh, separate us from one another and of course there was an appreciation for first responders because look at what they did. And we saw that again during COVID, where we saw health professionals, right, on the front lines, knowing full well that they may not be going home, but they had, they felt they had a responsibility. And I tell you this, I think they're all people of faith. They may not go to services every week, but they also believe that services continue when you walk out of that sanctuary. So I respect them. They are the real heroes of life. Even though very often they don't want to be called heroes, but they are the ones Who did so much to
0: save so many. Well, and your story is, is important. And it's a story that needs to be told because I think in some ways, though it's very different, it's every person's story. Your family left you a legacy of continuing to take that next step, beginning on page two, beginning again, not quitting. And you saw your family love others well. Because they knew just the depravity that is in the world firsthand. And you have experienced this as well, you know, having been there at nine eleven, seeing something that is unconscionable, and then trying to make do in the moment when none of us know how to respond. Yeah. And you're life on life with people. I know some people would be tempted to be like, well, that person's part of my people and that person... But you're like, if you are a person, you're my people and I'm going to care for you. And even the stories you're telling about that day, you were emotionally present. You were all there. You may have not known what to do. I don't think anybody knew what to do that day. I have a friend who just dropped this in a conversation. He was a retired NYPD officer and he said, Raleigh, here's a deal. Like every year I have to get my lungs checked out because of all the stuff that flew. He's like, I didn't know, I didn't know what else to do. I just jumped in my truck. The moment I heard the towers went down and I drove to ground zero and I was digging in, I was helping, I was doing everything I could because that's what you did. And I feel like everybody that day showed compassion or they reacted out of fear. They did one of the others. It was focusing on protecting yourself or focusing on protecting others how do you think you get to a point where you, you can protect others even if it comes at the expense of protecting yourself? I think it's the boundless love we have for human beings.
1: And, you know, I often ask, what would God want me to do? What would my parents want me to do? I think they want us to be present for others, even... Uh, when we take the risk of uh, losing our lives, that's that's a responsibility that comes with love. The word for love in Hebrew, chiba, has the same letters as chova, that means responsibility. Love comes with responsibility. Let me tell you one quick story, Raleigh. Frank Siller is the head of the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. His brother, Stephen, ran through the tunnel to the towers and lost his life. And Frank recently told me this story. He said, you know, it was my first communion and I come from a poor family. I got a total of $48. That's all I got. My parents said to me, Frank, you know, we're Catholics and you can't just keep all the money for yourself. You got to give part of it to a family that's less fortunate than we are. We're poor. So Frank took $24, gave it to the poor family down the street. He said, you know, Rabbi, I've always remembered what I did with what I gave. I don't remember what I did with what I kept. And Mm. maybe that's what it's all about, Raleigh. It's about giving. That's why God put us here. Not about keeping. It's about giving to others. That to me is why we were created.
0: And that's such a key aspect in both of our faiths, is this idea of giving, not focusing on what we're accumulating. Because... Yeah, I think anyone can agree with, like, anyone listening can agree with, yeah, it's like, I remember the things that I've done for people. I remember the times that I gave, but I I may not remember all the things that I got. Yeah, exactly. And how does this idea of love and responsibility, and I thought it was beautiful how you took that to the etymological root of, you know, love and responsibility are connected. But how does this true love, because... I feel like that's what's missing in a lot of conversations is we don't really talk about what does it mean to actually love someone? There's more going on than just liking someone. You know, when I grew up, if you liked someone, you'd say you liked them. But if you really like someone, you like liked them. But if you loved them, well, that's that's different. And I think a lot of us, we confuse love and like like. And love is something that is sacrificial. It takes risks It's responsible for others. And so how do you think this compassion leads to an idea of shalom? You know, I would hope that my son has been given this legacy
1: of love that my parents gave to me. And I think the more we love others, the more we recognize that others are entitled to the happiness that we have, that ultimately we arrive in a place where well, we can look at each other um, and we can say shalom, meaning it's okay. It's okay because we're together. So you can't really enjoy shalom as a loner. You can't mm. enjoy shalom as a recluse. But happiness is found with other people, being with other people. It's in a, being in a relationship with other people. That's why, look at the story of creation. It's not good to be alone. Yeah. Right? Starts from there. And you know, once you're not alone, once you're with others, you recognize that it's we, not I, and we are going to make it when we are
0: responsible for one another. And throughout this entire conversation, every story we've talked about, there was a choice either to dive deeper into yourself and hide or to Take a bold step into the lives of others, from your parents, to you, to the different people you met on that day on 9-11 and afterwards. We are all part of a story. There were people who informed our story and they were chapter one. We might be at chapter six and we're chapter two or three in someone else's story. And as we connect with each other, we're going to continuously grow and hopefully We're going to leave our environs in the world a little better than we found it, maybe with a little bit more love and pointing people to truth that will help them as they try to begin again. And so my last question for you, Joe, what advice would you give to people who have experienced something really hard in their life or they have had someone close to them go through something really terrible and they don't know if they can keep going How would you advise them on their journey of beginning again?
1: You know, over the years, I've met a lot of people who have gone astray, have done shameful things. Because I was all when I first began, I was chaplain in the federal prison of New York.
0: Mm. Matter
1: of fact, I'm looking at you and you don't look familiar to me from those years. (laughs) But I remember saying to those who were incarcerated, one day you're going to be released. Keep in mind that the last chapter Was not written here, and you should not be defined by one chapter. And I would hope that people going through a very challenging period are ready to confront that next chapter, understanding that this cannot be the final answer. That with that inner strength, you know, in Hebrew the word for strength is both koach and gavura. Koach is physical strength, gavura spiritual strength. Well, As you get older, that physical strength begins to wane. But sometimes the the spiritual strength begins to grow. And I think when you recognize you have that inner strength, when you also rely on others, lean on others, because I know Sinatra used to sing, I got to be me. Religious people sing, I got to be we. Mm. You're only going to make it with the we, with those who will stand with you and hold you up sometimes because it's easy to fall down. It's easy to give up. But when you have someone say, come on, we're going to cross that finish line together. We're not stopping here. I think you're going to find that life takes on a whole different meaning and you begin again. And
0: it's difficult to begin again alone from what you're saying. It's
1: impossible. Yeah.
0: It's always about the we. I love that. Rabbi Joe, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you. Raleigh Sandler, you're an exemplar uh, of the compassion we spoke of today, you know, You could, again, stay with only members of your own community, but for you, the word community, you're a communitarian, if I could use that phrase, that word. You're a communitarian. You try to bring others. We started with talking about small circles that Mother Teresa said we have to enlarge.
0: You've done that throughout your life. Keep doing it. I'm happy to be in your circle. And one thing, Joe, you talk about that, and I really appreciate that. That's that's such a kind compliment. We have spoken to different leaders together in New York, and I've always loved just how you have done the same and how you have always raised your voice for people and spoke at high levels to really remind people that it's not about us. I mean, you've spoken to, what? I mean, how many mayors have you spoken to in New York City? i
1: be giving away my age. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say there have been many. Many more than I ever thought I would speak to. But you know what? They're human. Yeah. And they make mistakes. And many of them welcome counsel. If you're honest about it, if you're sincere, people respect you. And over the years, I've always been able to speak from the heart and the head. And I find that people are willing to listen because they understand you value them. Right? You're not just talking down to them. You're talking to them.
0: And you want them to be better. And I love how you're bringing this message to them and helping them to see not only their constituents, but the people that they're walking by every day as people who have worth, people whose lives have meaning and need to be heard. And so thank you for being a mentor for so many of us who are really just learning how to love people. And so thank you for leading in the way that you have for so long. Well, You know what, houses of worship
1: have windows. Because what we say on the inside, you have to see on the outside. Mm. Raleigh Sandler, I know whatever he says is what I see. It's an honor to be with you.
0: Thank you. If you are interested in more conversations like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. If you want bonus episodes as well as a plethora of other resources, become a paid member at lmpg.org for $10 a month. You will get access to our bonus podcast, More Mercy, where we dive deeper. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. We want to hear from you, so you can email us at info Till next time, have mercy on yourselves and each other.